Welcome to the Millionaire Cookbook. I'm your host, Mohammed Sabri, and I'm looking to provide you with a million dollars worth of value in a single podcast. All right, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire Cookbook. This is episode 29, and it's the first episode after a little hiatus I took. Um, for anyone who listens to the podcast that did not see my Instagram story, as of right now, going forward, episodes will be bi-weekly, starting with this one here today. So it's going to be two podcasts a month, and it has nothing to do with laziness or anything. Uh, I just got other stuff going on uh, with my work and stuff, so I'll be focusing a lot on that. And at the same time, I do still want to deliver these podcasts to everyone that listens so i know they used to be weekly consistently but i don't want to carry on uploading weekly if it means that the quality is compromised or i'm not delivering the information that the listeners deserve to hear so instead of four mediocre episodes per month it's going to be two high quality episodes per month which i believe is a very fair trade-off uh stretches out the content too which is great Uh, Gives me more time to think of ideas, think of points, uh, cut up the episodes properly, etc, etc, and get some good guests on as well. So the podcast is going nowhere, just a little adjustment, but uh, I'm sure everything will turn out great. But regarding today's episode, episode 29, today we're featuring hedge fund owner slash manager L.A. Aiko and actually ran into him in a clubhouse room. Uh, I know I referenced the clubhouse room a few times in the episode itself, so I'm making it known right now. I saw him in a clubhouse room, and he was just, you know, talking about stuff inside hedge funds, and he ended up doing Q&A with all the listeners after. I even got to ask him a question or two. But the thing is, I just loved the way that he was carrying himself, all of the answers he was giving, how he was giving them. And the way he explains everything, it was so, so good. And I just had to have him on my podcast. So I ended up getting in touch with him on Instagram. And we were able to sit down and have a two-hour-long conversation. And I've never had a podcast this long before. But, you know, there's just so much good information in here that even if you can't listen to it all in one sitting, you know, it is two hours. It's all good. I don't expect anybody to sit that long and listen to a podcast through and through. But I do definitely recommend listening listening to it in increments. So, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes at a time. Digest the information, um, look over it again, and then carry on another 20, 30 minutes. But hey, if you are someone that really loves longer podcasts, you know, one, two hours. And, you know, or like if you're on the bus commuting or whatever it may be. If you're someone who likes to listen to longer podcasts this is definitely the one for you. So today, obviously, we talk about trading, um, hedge fund trading, all that good stuff. But as well, I know not everyone that listens here is interested in trading and the finances and all that stuff. So we do talk about other things such as time management, drive, uh, passion and money correlating together. And uh, we even, you know, touch up a bit on cryptocurrency and stuff, because I know that's really, really mainstream, especially right now in 2021. So there's a lot to cover. Uh, In the description of this episode, I do have everything we talked about. Unfortunately, I was not able to get timestamps done. 
However, uh, there should be an index slash glossary in the description. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and I hope you got a lot of value out of it. All right, enjoy. All right, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Millionaire Cookbook. This is episode 29, and today we're joined by L.A. Aiko. So, L.A., how you doing today, man? Hey, man, I'm great. Thank you so much. It's great to be on here, man. Of course, man. Thank you for coming on. It's great to have you. So, just to start, how about a brief introduction about yourself and as well just your background and how you exactly got to where you are right now, which is a hedge fund manager. Yeah, so uh, my background is unconventional, um, to say the least. Uh, One, because I'm a dropout from college, but even before then, um, I would say my entrepreneurial spirit started when I was 16. Uh, I used to own a video game business called Vega Electronics. Uh, In essence, I made third-party accessories. Um, Like, uh, let's say, you know, you have a carrying case to your, sorry, carrying case, a uh, phone protection case um, to your iPhone. Well, the first party is the one that's made by Apple. Second party would be what's sold in their store. Third party would be what you bought at the mall kiosk. So uh, back then, um, I used to use Ask Jeeves. I found uh, someone to help me reverse engineer how a circuit board was built for memory cards. Uh, And specifically, the product I sold for those memory cards was all the popular games back at that time for PlayStation 2, PlayStation 1. Um, I would have friends who had already beat those games, put all their saved content on the memory card for like the hottest three games and just release those memory cards in a series. And rather than, you know, play hooky from school on Fridays, like most people would do, I would just call uh, the toy buyers for uh, Toys R Us, KB Toys. This is, is, I'm 37 years old. This is a long time ago, but I used to call those toy buyers, um, So not to give you like the long drawn out thing, but I have to give you a perspective of why I got here because someone is going to ask, well, how do you get into a hedge fund and you don't graduate college? So, um, (laughs) but but mainly what it said is that I had tenacity. Um, I knew people go to work to answer their phone. I couldn't tell you how I knew I was going to get it in the store, but I just said I was willing to try. And excuse me, why I was willing to try was not because of some you know, oh man, I just, I don't know. Like, you know how like as we're grownups and we see it on the internet now, like, yeah, man, it's all about the hustle. It was not about the hustle. I, I, when I was 16, I wanted a Bentley. <laughs> I wanted one then. <laughs> and Cinnabon wasn't going to get me a Bentley. So I needed yeah. to figure out how I was going to get one. And um, reading entrepreneurship books, I learned that the people who were the richest uh, pretty much owned their dollar. So like when they got the dollar, they got the whole dollar, then they split up the dollar rather than when you work a job, you get a fraction of a dollar you don't know how much of that dollar you get of what you earned hell you could earn ten dollars and you got a dollar of the ten that you actually earned you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so um so just give me a, a few more minutes here and i'll, I'll wrap it up but <laughs> no worries people, man yeah because i the pe- people have to actually understand it because it, it, it all connects so after having that video game business and getting my products distributed at toys r us um when i went to college toys r us had gone through multiple bankruptcies uh throughout my early 20s. Um, So by the time it was hitting its second to last bankruptcy, uh, they voided all contracts and I was in college and my big, and this is my biggest mistake, especially when people think like, you know, you go to college, you can drop out or you you got a business, you get money. 
Um, I didn't do anything that anyone would do when you are in college or getting gearing up to go to college. I didn't intern anywhere. I didn't uh, do a bunch, a bunch of volunteer work. I did nothing. I, I ran a business and went to school. So I wasn't prepared to be able to like take, let's say some sort of finance class that was gonna help me get to Deutsche Bank or something like that. I started looking around and started realizing a lot of people weren't rich like I, like I wanted to get to. And it wasn't around wealthy people. I was like, my surroundings are not right. So I dropped out and I said, what could get me a stable job while I try to figure this out? And I said, oh, stock market, brokerage. Um, how I got introduced to brokerage because I, I did do a internship at Merrill Lynch. I know I, I'm contradicting myself, but the, the reality is I didn't do anything at that internship, but read a bunch of research papers for them, write down uh you know, write down some analysis and that's, it wasn't real. Like I, I knew nothing about a stock. I couldn't buy one. Hell, I didn't even know how to buy one back then. So when I did that and I put out my resume, what happened is I ended up working at um, a very large hedge fund and I didn't realize I was at that fund, uh, the Rossweiler Group. And um, the reason I got the job simply is because I was an entrepreneur and I had a successful business and they knew I had competitiveness in me and they could probably tell me how to do a job. And that, that's why I got the job. <laughs> really yeah. I just didn't know it was that job at the time. That was the issue. Yeah. Cause I remember, um, we talked about this off camera, but you know, for the first time mentioning this, uh, here on the podcast. So I actually met LA through clubhouse, uh, in a clubhouse room. And in that room, you were talking about how you actually got the job like by luck, in a sense. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pure luck. Like, I still remember her name now, Candice uh, Constor. Uh, she was, she's awesome because she's the one who started all of this for me. Um, so I apply. I, I interview one time. I get the job. And let me tell you, like, I was at a really big place. Like, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson one of my clients, uh, most people on the co congressional panel for oil back in 07, 08, when oil prices were like 144. Uh, so that's Lee Raymond, um, Rex, a few other people, they were all clients there. Wow. So I was in a firm where the true 0.001% were. We had more than seven people who had over $600 million. And it's not like where it's like this figurative, like, oh, this guy's worth that. Remember, I'm working at this firm. I have an account there just like they have an account there. I, I move and manage my account just like we manage their account. It's 600 liquid. That's insane. All, like, yeah, no one, no one there had less than 10. And the guys who had 10 didn't get a call ever. So, and then I had clients that were all over Malaysia, Singapore. Nigeria, um, just God, Equatorial Guinea, all kinds of places except for Saudi Arabia. But we did have like two guys in Qatar. Like we had them all over the place. So I was really in a big fund out of sheer luck. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, that, that isn't heard of. <laughs> you know, I'm saying it here right now. That's not heard of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then after I worked there, um, I ended up going to Paulson and Company. Uh, Paulson and Company is uh, run by John Paulson, who had the biggest trade in the mortgage markets. 
uh, back in 08, 09. Um, but that only happened because, again, I had worked at a fund already. Mm-hmm. So, and that fund wasn't, it, it, it had started getting bigger, but it wasn't a big fund. Like back then, John Paulson uh, hadn't become this like huge fund manager. Like it was just starting to get out that he, he, he was successful with that trade. And then, you know, he was starting to build out his team a little bit, but that was a guy who had a, a fund maybe that was under like a hundred million dollars, not even 10 people, you know? Mm-hmm. So I did that. And when I really got to that firm, I really started to understand everything that was going on. Um, hence why I can understand markets now. And I can talk about complicated derivatives and things of that nature at the bigger fund that I worked at, which was the Rossweiler group, um, Exxon mobile incentive, uh, stock options and executive compensation. We never got to see product. All I did was sell covered calls because we had so much money. We had well over like $30 billion. We didn't have to try to get these guys like a 50% return on their, just sell covered calls. They had, they had a cost basis on a lot of the stock at $10. Meanwhile, even back in 08, Exxon was trading at over 100. So, we, you know what I mean? Like if anyone who understands, you don't have to really go swing for the fences with that. You just got to sell covered calls. So um, at Paulson and Company, I got to understand MBS product. Uh, for those who don't know, mortgage-backed security, CMO, collateralized mortgage obligation, as well as inverse collateralized mortgage obligation, um, as well as the treasury the treasury's market and i I have to emphasize to people uh there's a difference between trading forex in the us 30 in the treasury market and trading fixed income treasuries very different the more you can understand fixed income treasuries the more you can um anticipate and understand what fed policy is and uh and global macro um happenings in, in other economies with how they handle their treasuries in their yields for their treasuries. So learned all of that there, learned municipal bonds, corporate bonds, learned stocks and charting, because most people always ask me, well, where did you learn all of this stuff? And I always tell them, I'm actually shocked because back then I was, I worked the job. So I never knew people had classes. Like, you know, like everyone has like their class, like, oh, I'll treat you options. I'll teach you Forex. Mm-hmm. I had never known that even existed because we, I, I worked and they taught us there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, I, I, it's hilarious. I was, I was so green. When I tell you I was so green when I came out and, I, and I've, I've done a few of these um, kind of podcasts and things, I didn't know. Um, so, so when people ask me, I'm like, no, nah, you can't learn this in business school because you end up really learning this stuff from some guy who's got 30 years of experience. Like I worked with people who actually had a 13% mortgage before. And, it, and that wasn't because their credit was bad. That's because that's what the rates were. Mm-hmm. So they're old as hell. Like, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I got two more segments to this story. It's not long. But after that, I went to uh, one of my last firms that I worked at, um, which was at National Securities. And um, I had a great boss there. Uh, he was literally the epitome of Wolf of Wall Street before I had ever even heard of Jordan Belfort or the movie. He was definitely just that person, nice. but Wall Street was Wall Street embodied that. But mainly, what he taught me and what it opened up to me is the ability to to run a fund. So you would think you would learn how to run a fund by working at a fund, 
but again, I emphasize, you're not taught to, to run the fund when you work there, you, you work there. That's why I was so oblivious to all this stuff. Um, when I went to this, my last boss, what he was doing is he had a whole floor in a building, like just the whole floor. Think about the whole floor when you get off the elevator. And all he had were a bunch of guys. They were, they were constantly raising money while he had a trading desk and other people who would uh, invest the money and he was bringing in like about 280, anywhere from like 260 something to 280 a month. I remember it distinctly because it's the thing that changed my life money-wise. I saw his pay stub because he was showing it to me and we were just chopping it up. And he was already at 700 and some odd thousand dollars for the year and it was March and my birthday's in March. I was like, damn. So it made me really uh, think about things and then Obama passes the Jobs Act, make, making it easier to start a hedge fund. Then I start scouring to try to start a hedge fund. And I, and I formulate a hedge fund and that's it. That, that, that's how I got here. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Especially, you know, I'm glad you gave that much perspective because a lot of people, they see people that run these hedge funds, really any successful business. And they either think that it kind of happened overnight or by accident, or they think it was like, you know, daddy's inheritance money you know but the fact that you gave that much perspective and it dates back to when you were in your early 20s and you went from firm to firm you even had like a video game business and i assume at the time you had no you know idea that you were going to run a hedge fund at the time too no i thought i would i thought i would play video games till i was old nice (laughs) it just did not work yeah so it's really good perspective that's that's awesome so as far as you know actual hedge fund trading, you know, the first question I want to ask in regards to that is how would it compare to just regular retail trading, you know, just at the comfort of your own home? Because me, myself, and a lot of my other listeners, we are retail traders. And again, me, myself, and other people as well, they're probably curious, you know, how does it compare? You can be as detailed or as pretty much general as you want with this. Well, excuse me. I would say that from a hedge fund perspective, one of the things I've noticed that a lot of retail traders don't do is that they don't pay attention to the treasury market. And I, and it's not their fault. You know, you, you haven't been taught the treasury market. Shit, where would you even be taught? I'm sorry to curse. I'm just saying like, okay. I think about this stuff and I just say like, I can only imagine trying to do this without having navigation when coming into this business. Like, let's say I, someone trained me how to like trade options and stuff like that. But then I don't know the, uh, the, the treasury market. So when I start a day, I start looking from the treasury markets. Even when the London session opens and all that, I look at treasuries. I, I want to understand what they are pricing at. If the yields are up, yields are down. If the uh, treasury auctions were strong or not, because that's the bond market, which is larger than the stock market directly affects how the stock market trades. So that's one part about what hedge funds do. Secondly, hedge funds aren't overly looking into um, technical analysis. We do look at it, but fundamental is bigger because what we're doing is we're creating core positions. And I'm not talking about core positions like an Apple, I'm talking about core positions and a thesis that we have. The whole concept of what we do is based on a thesis. And then from there, when we can stabilize um, volatility in the, in the portfolio, which is stabilized again by bonds, whether they be municipal, corporate, or mortgage, we then start to trade based off of the technicals 
for things we like, you know, value plays or things that are that that, that have accelerated growth, and we do that. Um, I'm not going to say all funds do this. There's there's obviously quant funds, but I would say that most funds, that's how they're looking at things. They don't really come in, open it up and say, what's hot or what's, what's coming through my uh, scanners today and start. Even my podcast, it, uh, and I'm not trying to plug my podcast on your podcast, that's but all it, good, it, man. the podcast gives a good concept of what happens in a fund because my podcast doesn't cover like random current events or it's every week or every day at the closing bell. It covers a thesis. That thesis, if you look, for, there's three seasons of my podcast. Look at it and you can back test it, or you don't even have to back test it that much. Just look at this year from January to now. It creates a thesis at the beginning of the year and then it builds off of it. That, that's all it does. And that's what a lot of funds do. And I don't think retail people do that because we don't even need to talk about like how you trade. I'm talking about how do you get to the conclusion of what you are going to do? That's really the first step. And then when we get to how we trade, if you, I, I, I don't want to over talk you, but I, if you wanted to understand that, then I could, I could then give you the details of that part. Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. <laughs> so you see like when now when it comes to like how you trade, one of the things about the funds is that we have a particular scenario in which we have access to, um, to, better leverage at cheaper prices and we get to control what our commissions cost. Mm -hmm. When I sign up with a prime broker, my prime, a prime broker is like if you're with TD Ameritrade, it's just that you guys will call them your broker, but really they're a prime broker. Um, we sign a contract and in that contract, I get to negotiate my rate of what I want to pay for commissions. And then they come back to me, tell me, this is how much you need to be trading in a month for us to honor it. Meaning like how many million shares I need to trade in a month for, for them to honor it because they're making their money off the commissions of how much I trade. This is the other reason why they give very cheap margin to funds because the cheaper it is for me to borrow, the more I'm going to borrow to make spreads you know, in the market. Um, the other thing is that after using particular prime brokers, like for instance, I use Lazard and I use, um, I use Lazard and I use, uh, what do you call this other company? Uh, interactive Brokers. Lazard is tied to Goldman Sachs and then Interactive Brokers, um, which I can't remember. No, Inter Interactive is their own thing because they have a publicly traded company. So they have access to liquidity themselves. Lazard is tied to uh, Goldman Sachs and that's how they get their liquidity and pass it to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's the difference. So I'm paying cheaper. I'm borrowing, uh, I have more leverage. And um, I, I use real research tools and it's not knocking a retail person. I'm just saying most retail people go like Yahoo Finance, things like that. And it actually shocks me because a lot of you guys like pay commissions, you trade, right? Like yeah. get a Bloomberg. Like I know it sounds wild to be like, oh, I got to pay $24,000 a year, but it's like, yeah, some of you guys are doing this like on a, in a kind of professional way. Like this, this, uh, this whole pandemic has put a lot of money in a lot of people's pockets. I'm quite surprised you, they're not getting Bloomberg's because you can get so much access and understanding to what you're doing. The biggest thing that shocks me, again, I don't over talk, I'm just saying the biggest thing that shocks me in this market is people aren't looking to um, mitigate their volatility. Mm -hmm. And I know they're not because uh, corporate and municipal bonds are slumping and, I, and most retail people don't know how to buy them. 
so that means you're margining securities and, and playing with this volatility, that's insanity. Meanwhile, funds are using a steepener trade method to avoid volatility. Gotcha. Yeah, that's all really interesting to know, especially the first couple of things you named about the thesis and the fundamentals. And then the technicals kind of come after because when it comes to retail trading, the first thing we sort of do, and again, you mentioned the classes, how you didn't know they existed. All these classes, the first thing they teach all the students is the technicals, you know, drawing your zones, the candles, basically all the chart work. And me specifically, unless there's like a major news event or something, I won't even look at fundamentals so you know that's just really cool to see kind of the main differences between them in that regard oh man i'm i'm happy that you um can can capture it you know yeah definitely you know and for all the retail traders listening to this you know pay attention take notes because this is some really good stuff but moving on from uh that technical side of things as far as psychology goes would you say, you know, how is the psychology with the hedge fund trading? Because I can imagine with, uh, you know, the millions of dollars liquid that's involved with other investors' money being in their pool, basically. Yes. And I remember you mentioned on Clubhouse as well, something about performance coaches or something that kind of help you get your mind right. So you want to elaborate yeah. on Yeah. So let me, let me go into it. And, and anyone who's heard this, I'm so sorry. I know I probably sound like a broken record. It's, but it lets me understand how many people don't know this. And if you're young, I know you don't even, you probably weren't even tapped in and caring about it because we used to laugh about this when I was. So at the first firm I was at, my boss was like, yeah, I got a performance coach for us because he was trying to compete with, um, with Steve Cohen. Um, Steve Cohen, who's now the owner of the Mets, who used to run uh, SAC Capital, big, uh, biggest uh, insider trading fine. Um, Steve is the basis for the show Billions. Uh, Axe Capital is based off of SAC Capital. Wendy Rhodes is Denise Scholl, but Denise worked for our firm and the person who actually worked for Steve is Ari Kiev, who is the inventor of this concept of psychoanalysis for traders. So his name is Ari Kiev. So I had to give you the backstory so you could understand yeah, yeah. this um, uh, because it just lets you understand like this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. So what they used to try to get us to do is to get engaged into our day because our days would be long. Like I'd start work at about 730 because I would have international clients and I would have domestic clients and we'd have like I'm serious. We'd have clients on some field in in like the middle of Nigeria. And yeah, it, it, listen, it was wild. <laughs> um, but we really did and we had them everywhere so we had, they wanted us to get engaged and be in this particular kind of mind frame so they brought in um Ari and I never took it seriously I like I, I still have the CDs till this day and believe me these are these are very serious CDs like this guy invented this this whole concept of managing your emotions and performing like a machine so the concept of why acts in that show is kind of that way is if you've read Ari's book or if you've ever had a performance coach and I'm gonna talk about like a sports performance coach like I'm one that's very geared towards trading their job is to dissect you kind of break you down to to stitch you back up and re rebuild you exactly like they want and you can see that this is proof positive if you've ever read Denise Scholl's book 
uh, who is who should be Wendy Rhodes. And then you started looking at the problems you had that were, they're all internal problems. Most of them originate from childhood. And then they spill over into your trading because trading is, is, a, is a game theory, actual, actually a game theory kind of thing. It's not really one on none. You're, you're playing a game in which you cannot understand what the other side potentially could do. The, the whole process of prisoner's dilemma. Mm-hmm. You, you know an outcome you're looking for, you don't know what the other side's going to do, but you're actually competing against the other side with no, you know, with no intel and a limited amount of choices. You don't have endless choices. You have a limited amount of choices. So the more you can understand that aspect of how you think, the more effective you'll become. This is the whole concept of even Mark Douglas is trading in the zone, not completely, but close. There is a part of you that hits a particular point. You know when you're performing at your optimal best, if you've ever taken the time to really pay attention to it. Your performance coach is trying to get you to learn how to tap into that. So again, going back to show billions, I know I'm speaking about this in a complicated way, but I like to reference things to real life stuff where you've been able to see it. There's a time where, where Axe will go into a room, he'll sit and he'll kind of meditate. He is trying to get himself to that in the zone part of himself. And I know like that's the point of kind of meditation, but that's not what they're, what I'm talking about. In performance coaching, it's internal. Like only you know where it is, where it clicks. There's a part of you that has a balance. It's like, I'm the most competitive here. I'm the most successful here. And if you catch that part of yourself and then go do an act that requires all these kind of um, ways of thinking, you will see you will execute very, very effectively and efficiently and, and you'll be very successful in how you do it because you're just really in tune. Um, but that's what performance coaching does. And it, it's very relevant, even when people will say like, oh man, either I can't afford it or why do I wanna do it? I didn't understand it was relevant back then, but wh- this is why it's relevant. The other side of mastering that is millions of dollars. That's really the difference. You master that and then you go trade, it's millions of dollars. Yeah, man, that is amazing to hear just because, you know, trading psychology, it's so, so important. And I love how you plugged in uh, Mark Douglas's Trading in the Zone because I listened to that audiobook through and through and it was phenomenal. It helped me, especially because, you know, for me, I'm really, really good with the technicals. Charting, I can call a move easy. But entering a move, holding to position, managing drawdown, managing risk, all that stuff, that is what held me back a long, long way when it came to trading. And I know a bunch of people, same exact thing. That's what held them back. But one of the things that really caught my attention, I remember you mentioned this both in the clubhouse room and just now, you said that a lot of the problems uh, leak through from your childhood. So you want to give a bit of more detail and elaborate on that because I'd love to know more. Yeah, so <clears throat> when I was young, I was not good at algebra. And I remember when we started algebra and I think, don't you start algebra in like fifth grade? I remember I was like, like fifth grade, I started algebra. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's fifth Yeah, grade. like fifth or sixth. Yeah, that's, it's like I said, I'm 30, so it's such a long time. <laughs> I just know it was in elementary school. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you used to have to show your work when you would do some of those formulas. And what I... I used to always get nervous about is because, you know, I'd get a wrong answer. Then I showed my work. Then my work would be all marked up because of what I did wrong. And then I'm failing at the same time. And I wasn't like a failing kid. Like it all came together when I got into high school. However, 
you know, again, you're young and, and you feel uh, like you're failing. So I started getting uh, self-conscious and very uncomfortable for someone to look at my work. Now, when you go and run, work for a fund, when you first start off at a fund and like I first started off, and that's another thing young people should understand here, or anyone who cares about this space, you, you, you don't get up and you start trading. That, that doesn't happen. Uh, you're usually someone's like Boy Friday, for those who don't know. It's like, uh, gosh, like almost like their butler kind of servant. Like you're their, you're their man Friday, not Boy Friday. And you do everything for them, uh, for a trader. So you can learn the desk, learn the product, learn how everything works. But if you're smart at that time, what you're really learning to do is pay attention to where all the products get sold, how you talk on the phone, et cetera. Because a lot of the, because just a small caveat to what I'm trying to say, a lot of people think your job in these places is to sell. I mean, it's, it's to trade when in reality, your job in these places is to actually sell. Um, especially if you're the junior person and you're not the main trader, you have to form relationships. Just like if you were calling and telemarketing, you're just telemarketing to another firm, except this guy happens to know what you're selling. But in some cases, they don't even know what you're selling. This is that key part in the movie, The Big Short, where um, the guys who work for Chase with uh, Michael Baum um, are asking Jared Bennett, so what are you selling us? What is actually in this stuff? Don't fuck us later. Because you can sell something that someone else doesn't understand. Your job is to sell stuff. Yeah. So anyhow. Take a, so I just needed to make sure people understood that. I don't want them to think it works that way. So then the other part about this, you're, you're, you know, you get to these places and you have to get yourself up to speed um, and you're going to spend that time getting yourself up to speed. You will then, after, uh, after getting acquainted, you'll then kind of, what's the best way to say it? Um, You'll get your shot to um, to finally trade, to finally do everything that you were, I guess you could say you you you, you came to do, and then people are now going to start looking at your 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 P and Ls, and then they're going to question you about those P and Ls. So when I would be questioned about my P and Ls, my fear and being restricted in how much I would trade had to do with someone looking at my PL, questioning my PL, and how I got to why I made that trade. But if I make my trade smaller, they can only ask me so much because the risk was only so much. Do you kind of follow? Yeah. So I never really got to a point where I was betting big. It took me a while. Had I taken my performance coaching seriously early in my, in my career, I would have beat, beat that already. But I didn't take performance coaching seriously until I was like 28. So there you go. And I started in the business when I was 23. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's so, so cool how like everything comes full circle because, you know, I've heard from a few different people as well. It's like in society, you know, especially like in school growing up, we're conditioned to think that if you get a wrong answer on your test, you know, that's a bad thing. Or if you fail something, that's a bad thing. We're conditioned to think that failure is bad. Whereas in trading, you know, you're going to lose money. You're going to lose trades. And you can't take that conditioning with you, which kind of comes back to what you said about things about your childhood leaking into trading. You know, this is kind of the same exact thing. Yes, yes. It, and it, it just does. Um, it all, gosh, almost all of it originates from childhood. Um, not everything, but the majority of it. 
and that and I don't want it, people to think like it turns into this like relationship thing. It has nothing to do with that. It, it's it's really these aren't clinical people. They're not going to prescribe you medication. It, 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 they just want to dissect you um, because it's in you, and you even know it's in you. You, you just have a, an issue coming to terms with it. And the only time it starts to rear itself is through your anxieties. And when you have to look at a monitor yourself, when you've lost for a few days and you can't find your head or tail as to what the direction is or all kinds of stuff like that, oh, it, it rears its head pretty ugly at that point and it gets worse and worse. Oh, that's, why, that's one of the other reasons why there's so much uh, drinking and substance abuse on Wall Street. It has a lot to do with um, just psychological pressures and fears wow yeah i didn't know that you know i thought it was like a whole big meme on the internet that like these wall street guys like snort cocaine and stuff oh no my my boss um <laughs> very functioning like my old boss uh on, he's actually on cnbc often um he's not a coke head but he uses coke a lot and but he's super functional um he's the kind of guy that'll do coke wake up at uh 5 a.m listen to tony robbins get pumped the fuck up and and go to work and then on the weekend go walk over hot coals and be i'm not i'm not exaggerating like that that he will do that and then on friday drive us all to ac do a bender have the hookers and come back and be ready to go and perform and that is insane <laughs> <laughs> I, I i know i know wow but going back to what you said about you know anxieties like with um you know just having anxiety being in front of the monitor and trading and stuff because i remember i asked you a couple of days ago on clubhouse you know i asked about how can a retail trader transition into hedge fund trading and kind of what they can expect and one of the things that really caught my attention and really stuck with me is you basically said basically like cut out all the bs in your life because any inconvenience in your life any stressor it's just going to make it 10 times worse because this business, it's not a joke and it really can like mess you up mentally. So, you know, you kind of want to, do you want to more so elaborate more on that about what you said a couple of days ago and kind of just add on to it? Cause I found it really interesting. And I think a lot of people, they're going to not only apply it to trading, but just whatever endeavor they're doing. People aren't even ready for that. Like <laughs> I smile oh. when I say it. They're not ready for it because um, it is. There's only two way you get two ways you even get to that that stage in your life. Either your back's against the wall and you're down to your last, or um, you have that mamba mentality and you have all the talent in the world and you're willing to do it. And you can see that uh, there's only a few people like Kobe and Jordan. There's a bunch of people every year who are D1 level talent, some of them freakishly more athletic and built and they amount to nothing. So point of what I'm saying, and I, I preface with that is this, the reason why I cut out everything in my life in the BS when I was younger is because one, I saw people were making anywhere from 40 to $75,000 a month. And, I had, and other than in my video game business, I'd never seen that. And I wouldn't make it in a month I would make it per contract delivery that I delivered those memory cards, but these guys could make it every month. So one, I was like, wow, this is the kind of money I want to be around. Two, I dropped out of college and I was mature enough to say, all right, if I drop out, this is my education. Whereas most kids, when they get their first job, especially at that college age, you get the money, it's models and bottles and you're in the city all the time. And I 
knew that I would wash out quick if I did that because it just, there was just, it was too intense. Like the job was just intense, bro. Like, yeah. so I needed to be focused. So I, I, I chose that focus. So I said to myself, if I put two, two years in, three years in straight, no BS, take it all out. I don't go out. I don't party. I don't drink. I don't do anything other than work, learn who's around, everything like that. I can cut down the amount of time it would take me to get successful, right? Because the more distractions I have, the more things, the, the, the less focus on work I am. Um, and I didn't have an unlimited source of money to catapult me into the right position. And I'm going to give you an example as to why. I had a friend that I worked with at that time, Tim. Tim came from money. His father had invented like uh, one of these kinds of stints that you use. Uh, so, you know, he worked at our firm. He got the job because his father was a client of the firm, but he also had money. You follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And he was able to, to, I mean, we were, we were young. Like Tim already had almost a million dollars in a trading account and he would trade, you know, he'd buy all the cheap stuff at that time back in 08. Um, but the only way I, I, I could never like, you know, I would never be able to catch up with Tim I, I, unless I put in more time than Tim because I was never going to catch up with money. I didn't have it. Um, not, not to that extent, not, nothing, nothing close like that. So that time allowed me in the same amount of time that Tim ended up still having that job. I was already a Paulson and co and a trader, whereas Tim was still working an admin job when we were three years removed from first meeting each other, if you kind of follow what I'm saying. Yeah. And the only reason I got there is because I knew everybody. Like what I mean, I knew it. Like I knew who to call if you wanted to sell something. And then I actually had a relationship with them. So people would come to me like, oh, I got these. Can you, can you talk to your guy? So I became a person that people had to talk to. And I became a person that people could, could float something through to make a commission, you know, because I knew the other party on the other end only way I was going to be able to do that was cutting out the BS because it took too much time, too much work yeah. to ever get there <laughs> in, um, in, in an efficient amount of time. If I was hanging out and BS it, like from my, from 23 to, uh, 26, yeah, almost going on 27. I never went out a weekend. I worked Monday through Saturday. I, I, I would take off on Sunday. I worked Monday through Saturday and I always worked from 7.30 ish, eh, 7.30, 8, uh, all the way until about 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Every day. Nice. Like if it was a holiday, I wouldn't go home uh, because I would turn around and go to clients' houses for Christmas dinner or things like that. And those same clients ended up being the hedge funds clients when I started. That That's, I, that's what I did. It, it's it, it, it's terrible to do that in your 20s it's hard but you know what why I did it because I knew that if I did that at that time by the time I was in my late 20s early 30s I would be far ahead of everyone and I'm going to give young guys an example by the time I was 27 out of my friends I was the only one who had a true foreign sports car I had a, I had a, a, a 911 turbo then by the time I was 30, I had a Maybach with a driver. And anyone who knows me knows it's for real. I, till this day, I still have a Maybach with a driver. So that's, that's what those years were worth, those three years. 
That's amazing. Yeah, it definitely sets an example for young guys. Like for me, I'm turning 22 in less than two weeks, and that is a great example. And for me, like I even kind of lived a short version of cutting out the BS because December 2019 up until March 2020, basically right when the pandemic hit North America, I didn't, I think I only went out four times that entire time. And three of those were for birthdays. Okay. So like, <laughs> I, I kind of like, you know, it was just a gesture type of thing. If it was just a normal hangout, like no thanks. And like the only thing I, I was really focusing on from the moment I woke up to the moment I fell asleep, it was just my work, you know, like my business and my powerlifting, because, you know, I do that as a hobby competitive powerlifting. So I was either at my desk or in the gym or in the kitchen, you know, eating to recover from my workouts. But point is, those three months I've made more progress both in the gym and in my business than I did for like the past two years. And it's just so, so cool to see what just isolation and focus, how far it can get you in such a short amount of time. You know, I'm, I can guarantee if I didn't focus and isolate during those three months, the results I got during that time, it probably would have taken me six to nine months per se. See, and I like that. I, and I just like the fact that you could be honest about it because um, the, the, most of the time, the only time people can be honest about that is they have to see their friends flounder. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'm just giving you, I'm talking about, I had friends who had their masters. Uh, none of them had what the stuff I had. And I know it's not all about material stuff, but I, I'm going to tell you this, especially when people don't think it is, Make your life not about material stuff that you need to acquire and see what happens when you're 30 and you don't have it. Most people freak out. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a good example, a good, you know, something I, good I to leave them. it with. Yeah. yeah, I see them. They freak out because they say, oh, my God, like, you know, like, what am I about to do or how am I about to put this together? Um, so. And then on top of it, stay in a major city. Like a lot of us who are young, well, I'm not young anymore, but a lot of people who are young, they want to live in major cities like Los Angeles, New York, um, Miami. You know, you can't live in those places. You're not earning any real money. Can you like live there? Yeah, you can live there. But if you like the scene and you like to be somebody, you cannot <laughs> be low on funds and be in these places. It's, it's, it's yeah. excruciating. It's excruciating, man. Yeah, definitely. I just feel like it's all about thinking ahead because right before December 2019, I'm talking like that entire summer. So summer of 2019, the whole fall, September, October, November, I wasn't doing anything, man. Like I was doing <laughs> the bare minimum. I'm talking like, you know, I'll have one winning trade. I'll be like, all right, I'm done for the week. And then I'll just spend the rest of the time, you know, hanging out when I wasn't hanging out, you know, that's because other people were doing that. So I was not doing much. Like I'll, I'll flat out admit it, you know, like I wasn't making any money. I was just, you know, going through the motions, doing the minimum. And that was basically my life. It just gets to a point to where it's like, you got to sit yourself down, be honest with, it, with yourself and be like, all right, what am I doing right now? Where's this going to take me going forward? It's just about looking ahead. And like you mentioned earlier, once you have your back towards the wall, that's when everything kind of, you know, that's when you see the light almost. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, a lot of people, they won't do it until their backs against the wall. Uh, there's very few people who just say, I'm just, I just want to perform. I want to be a high level performer. You know, um, 
I live by a mantra and I, I have it on the back of my Rolex. And this like the first Rolex watch I ever bought, that, that's what I put on the back of my, my Rolex. It's called um, No Sympathy for the Successful. So imagine you were in high school and this is, I hate to say this cliche thing, but a lot of people know it. Like, damn, homie, in high school, you were the man, homie. Well, remember that same success you had there, there's no sympathy for you. That's why it's damn homie. The mm. same way when you get older and you get your first foreign car, you get your, you know, most young guys like an M4 or something like that. Well, when you can't keep that consistency and you fall off, it's damn homie, what happened? The more you're, you're aware of yourself, and you really know where you want to be. Like I, I was a person who knew exactly what life I wanted to live and how it was supposed to look. You then only take the decisions that get you to that life. And you are aware that you must perform. You can't slack like that. And uh, you're ready to go. I, I, you know, again, the internet has this weird thing where it's like, yo, don't worry about all that. Money comes as long as you got the hustle. And it's like, that's a lie. You, you, it's intentional when you choose to go make that kind of money, it does not fall in your lap. If people wanna say that's not true, hey, I commend you. Uh, I have not seen a lot of people who, ha who have made hundreds of millions of dollars on accident or because they kind of fell into the space. Now, opportunity meets preparation, but it, it took some work to be prepared for that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. And, you know, I really liked how you said I knew the life exactly that I wanted to live because, you know, like you just said, a lot of people are like, you know, the money will come type of thing. But it all goes back to kind of having your why and just reminding yourself, like, why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you want to live the life you want to live? And I feel like a lot of people, especially in this day and age where it's just, man, I mentioned this so many times on my podcast, but it's so easy to get like just a dopamine high, you know, scrolling through social media or eating junk food, whatever it may be, people are losing drive, motivation, passion, and they don't really know their why. So for someone like you who has kind of been through it, done it, been there, still there, what advice can you give to those younger people that may feel a bit stuck or just need that kind of, you know, sign or guidance to figure that stuff out and keep going forward? Okay, so before I even answer that, I want to just add one extra part to what we were talking about yeah um about you know just being motivated again it's it's not to challenge this mantra but I, like i said internet way of thinking <clears throat> and that it'll come so if it would come why weren't you a millionaire when you were in your early 20s like most kids think like i remember when you were young and you would have be like with your cousin or your best friend and be like yeah man i'll be a millionaire when i'm like 23 24 years old or things like that you, you've never been exposed to what it takes to make that kind of money, how it looks, what your environment would need to look like in order for you to pull it off, etc. It's the same concept of why it can't fall into your lap. It is intentional. There are people who it has fallen into their lap, but we don't talk about outliers in real life. We talk about the majority because the majority is usually where you're going to fall. The majority of us are average. Uh, and then there's few of us that are exceptional. There's a few of us that are extraordinary, but majority of us are average. So that should already define to you that money won't just find you because you're doing the work. Not happening. You get what you you get what you negotiate, not what you deserve, and you negotiate with life. So that's that part. So now to speak about feeling stuck. 
I felt stuck before. Um, so I got fired uh, from one of my jobs. And when they fire you from these jobs, especially because you were dealing with clients and your ability to take clients, uh, they freeze you out for about 30 days. They don't have to, but they usually do if you were successful at what you were doing. You know, if you were trash, no one gives a fuck. <laughs> you can go. Um, you, you're not going to challenge anyone, you, anyone's client. But I wasn't trash. So when they freeze me out for 30 days, um, I got mad bills because I'm living the young people's life. I could put it to you this way. When I really started making money, like $20,000 a month, that's where I started off at, like not started off making that, but like when I started kind of getting into gear and making money, I was buying everything. I'm talking about, so my Porsche was white with a cocoa brown interior with a, uh, uh, you know, convertible top. And what, what, what other thing is cocoa brown? Louis Vuitton. No. I had a bunch of Louis Vuitton. I had the bags. I had the duffel. I had the, the weekend bag. I had the book bag. I had all matches. I had a bunch of Gucci stuff. I, I was just, I was spending. Then I had an apartment that overlooked the Hudson. I'm not sure where you're from, but if you just pick whatever city you're from, the, the part that overlooks water, if you're on one of the coastal cities, you already know it costs money. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm living there. So I can see the, um, the uh the holland tunnel from my house which leads into new york it's right next to my house i can see it i can see right across the river the hudson river and i see new york city so i'm you know i'm living i'm paid I ran into that problem i was when i say i was stuck i was stuck messed me up but what kept me going was that i really just couldn't see myself doing anything else. Um, I knew I wasn't finished. My clients liked me. I mean, I was messed up. I was getting skinny. Like, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't mm -hmm. eating the right way because my schedule wasn't right. <laughs> and I had to start figuring out what my next move was going to be because by the time it would have been 30 days, I don't even know if I would have had a client left. I was talking to them, but it doesn't mean they were going to deal with me. Right. Yeah. yeah. So one was prayer, but I can't even sit here and say like I was praying every day. I was kind of in a state of shock, not shock and depression, but shock like in, you know, what's my next move going to be like? I got this expensive apartment. I got this car. Like I got, you know, I got a lot going on and I don't want to sell anything because like I was too prideful. But in a nutshell, what got me through and what really made me kind of readjust myself was making a new plan using the same focus and steps I had used before to get to that plan. Cause now this is several years later. I'm now 28 years old. I now do party on the weekends. I now do have girls over. I now do have my friends over. I had to start scaling that all the way back again. I had to start like I had to start over, but not start over like from nothing, but start over mentally. Mm -hmm. And, and really almost like a training montage in like an 80s Rocky movie or something like that. I had to get lean. I had to, you know, shed that stuff off my mind and say, all right, where are we getting to? And then when I needed to get there, I started taking it simply just by the day. And, this, and when I say by the day, this is how I started putting my, my fun together. So after I, I'm at that last job and I'm putting my fun together, all I did was every day, 
I just wanted to make one step forward, one step forward. So all those steps could finally build into something. And as I kept putting that one step forward, I ran into uh, who I call my hedge fund mentor, John Gutman. And John literally just pieced me together, pieced me together by walking me into everything that I needed to walk into so I could create and structure a fund. Uh, but I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't kind of shed all the the weight off of me in terms of like uh the distractions again put one foot in front of the other on a daily basis simply just in that one foot again figuratively like a little bit of business each day just to kind of put myself back into the motions to, for it to finally kind of culminate you follow what i'm saying yeah yeah that that's how i got through it that's awesome yeah i don't really have anything to add on to that because you said it really well and obviously stuck with me it's definitely stuck in sticking with the listeners so yeah that's great and i do have more questions in regards to you know that realm but just to kind of you know close off the hedge fund side of things i do want to know and i'm sure there's other pe people curious about it just about starting a hedge fund you know who can start it do you need like a minimum amount of money net worth liquid cash cash whatever uh, how does one go about starting it and as well can you start like a you know, different types. So one focus, like, let's say like a stock hedge fund or like a Forex hedge fund, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You can start any kind of hedge fund that you want. Um, quite honestly, starting a fund has more to do with qualifying for, uh, what is called, um, a regulation D private placement or private offering, not placement, private offering exemption. So what the jobs act allowed people to do was have more unaccredited investors and, qual and qualify for what is called the Regulation D exemption um, to make a securities offering. So you don't have to register the fund, but you do have to notify the Securities and Exchange Commission that you're operating the fund and who you are and where you are. And then you have to apply the Securities and Exchange Commission's Regulation D offering or exemption, sorry, to notify the states in which you have clients that you're operating in their state and you would like to request an exemption to have a limited amount of clients in that state. The state has the number that they deem as appropriate. It can be anywhere from like one to 25. Some states you don't have to pay anything, some states you do. This is why hedge funds are uh, prominent in particular states. Like at a time they were more prominent in Connecticut then Connecticut had its issues. They were more prominent in New York. New York raised its taxes and started messing with the accredited investors. So people went to Florida where there is no limit on accredited investors and there's no state tax. So these things kind of change, but can anyone start a hedge fund? Yes, anyone can start a hedge fund. You don't have to necessarily have these prerequisites. Can you start it in Forex? You can start it in Forex. You can start it in anything you want. Um, you need to just make sure you have the exemption to get accredited investors. Now, there, there's also rules in other particular states where you can have non-accredited investors to a certain degree. This is another thing why I, I also hear this a lot, like certain minority groups and people saying all oh, the culture and that minorities don't get access to these private placements. That's not true. We do have access to them. Are you connected enough to get it is a whole different story. Companies can take unaccredited investors. This is a thing that was addressed in the Jobs Act. 
Now, do, does the company want an unaccredited investor is a whole other thing because what comes with an unaccredited investor is someone who's not knowledgeable enough and usually cries when it hurts. This is the concept of GameStop and um, AMC and when people lost money or things didn't work out, they were at the Robin Hood offices, corporate headquarters, uh, trying to bust people's heads. You won't see that with accredited investor. He's going to go the route of legal action or something of that nature. He's not coming to sit in front of your house or some nonsense like that. It's stupid. So uh, that's one of the other problems about you know the non-accredited investor route. However, people, you know, you can do it. If you have a small fund, you don't have to start with a million dollars. You could start with a hundred grand. You could start with fifty grand. Now, are you going to go get a big prime broker like I have? No. But you can start with interactive brokers who will take that business. TD Ameritrade will not take that business. And actually, they'll tell you that they can't support the business. So this is another reason why a lot of hedge funds have to go to these other prime brokers like JP Morgan Chase, Lazard, uh, Fidelity, not the Fidelity that people use to trade on. There's another Fidelity that uh, ha handles hedge fund and institutional money. Um, even Wells Fargo has a has has a has a robust brokerage platform that most people don't know about uh, that is for institutions only. So, yeah, I mean that that's that's what people could do out here if they really want to start funds. Now it gets even more technical than that, um, I, and I don't want to kind of take the podcast left. But yeah, I mean, could I literally walk you through how to do it? Yes, I I could. And, and a lot of that way of walking you through and the relationships you would have to make with lawyers and accountants is how you would actually get your clients. Most people think you gotta like shake your tin cup or do your dog and pony show to get your clients. But in reality, you would get most of your clients from your lawyer and your accountant. And the, the, why they have their stake in the game to help you get clients is because the more clients you have, the bigger your fund gets, the more they can bill you fees. So they generally won't charge you on the front end for you to build out your fund. They'll charge you on the back end and it is your job to do the hustle work, get in the business while the, the, the introductions they give you so that when they bill you at the end of the year, their 10, 15, $25,000 for their work, you can pay it because you've gotten clients through these introductions and you're off and running. It's one of the one places in this business, especially hedge fund business, where people will mess with you, man. They'll give you a shot. It's not this biased, messed up thing like entertainment or one of these places where people gaffle you and all that kind of stuff. People know if you're successful, you pay fees. So they want you successful. Most of them have money already. They'll cut you a break on the front end, not charging you, charge you at the end of the year or early in the new year. And you just do your work and do your job. Perform. Gotcha. And I like how you mentioned how to get clients too, because I didn't want to ask you that, but it uh, looks like it was missing in my notes. So I'm guessing that's how you got your first couple clients as well, just to like through your lawyer and stuff, or is there? No, like my more first couple clients came from my, from the fact that I, I've worked in other firms. And I remember gotcha. I told you, I, rather than going home on holidays, I, I, I went to go eat at my client's house. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, yeah, I was having dinner with them. I was, went to their vacation house. I did all that kind of stuff. You know, just, I, I just, got acquainted man like you know that was my job but when i um when i finally got everything up and running yes i started getting clients through my attorney and my accountant um hell i, I met regulators that way i almost bought a brokerage firm that way but it had too much regulation tied to it and then if you had the brokerage firm it was an issue with having a hedge fund and a brokerage firm 
So it was just, um, it was a bit of a mess. So I didn't end up buying the broker term. But the point about it was that I was in those kind of circles. Like mm-hmm. I was in the circles of SEC regulators or former regulators, how they looked at things. And then I could directly contact that person and they would reply because they met me at my accountant's office. So they, they know my accountant, they don't know me, but they have a longstanding relationship or friendship with my accountant. But my accountant's not some regular accountant. He's an accountant at a big firm who's probably got 30 years in the business. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And I keep using that keyword like 30, 40 years. That's what some of these guys have been working for that damn long. They're in their late 60s. Like, you know, they just still work. They are a great resource for you because a direct introduction from them means a lot. Gotcha. All right, cool. And just a little side question here. You don't have to go too deep into this unless you want to, because I know you mentioned that you do run some more businesses, you know, just during the off hours of your uh, hedge fund and stuff. How would you compare trading as a whole, whether it's retail trading, hedge fund trading, whatever it is, compared to like your traditional business, whether it's like service-based, e-commerce, where you're selling like a product, brick and mortar, whatever it may be, how would you compare the two? Because I know there's a lot of people out there where they do want to kind of escape that like traditional nine to five, you know, cubicle, whatever. And they do want to get into, you know, just kind of working for themselves and kind of creating their own path. So how would you compare the two? You know, which one is uh, more mentally draining? uh, Which one's more lucrative, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, go ahead. So a hedge fund is is more lucrative only if you're trading really well and you're you know you're in that zone but with some of these service-based businesses and i only do service-based business i don't do any businesses product-based um that has more so to do with me wanting a wide a wider margin of profit i specifically only choose businesses that have a wide margin of profit and that i can control the margin I'm not immediately being undercut by the next person, you know, next to me or, or you know, down the street. Um, so, for example, uh, I have income tax preparation as one of my businesses and I have uh, a decent amount of um, locations, five in total and about 2000 clients. And it's super valuable because it's really heavily service based. Um, the margins are extremely good. And after you set a turnkey process to it, all you have to do is train the other people to follow that turnkey process. And it, you know, it just turns over money over and over and over and over again. Um, I like it for, for that fact. I like to create businesses that don't have a lot of variable. I want to be able to create a business where I can be somewhere else and it operates without me even being there. And I know how it's supposed to operate. Like if I were to call in and it would be any part of the day and I'd ask if this, that was done and someone says it in the wrong order, I already know they're wrong and I know what they need to fix and I don't need to be there in order to execute it. And I put someone in charge to execute that and it works every time. So that's one. Then um, the second part is just that, like I said, the fund, like in this past year, we did extremely well. So that's like we had uh, over 70, over 70. 45 million uh, PNL on the on 2020, and then by the time 2021 opened up, and one of these drug manufacturers for COVID hit $300, we were just shy of 100 million in total assets under management before mar- before margining the securities. So this is huge, you know. Like we really had a run. 
um, that's when that was successful. But that was my, this, this is my most successful, that was my most successful year ever. I'd never had a year that successful before. So it's harder to get the successful year out of the fund. It's easier to get more consistency out of the clients for, let's say for every like, um, for every 300 and some odd clients I have in my income tax preparation business is about $1.2 million before tax. So do you see what I'm saying? Like it's more yeah. consistent on the other way. It may not be as big, but every year I can count on a little over $3 million. Gotcha. Yeah, that pretty much answers that. So yeah, that's awesome. So the next two questions, I can pretty much just merge them into one. They're more so questions that, you know, people can just apply to everyday life and whatever endeavor they're choosing to do. And the first one being, you know, you mentioned on Clubhouse that, you know, it was very subtle, but I did catch it. You basically said that you don't believe in the whole, just follow your passion and like the money will come. You know, you don't believe in that. You have a different belief in it. So I do want you to really elaborate on that and why you think that and just go into detail about that. And the second question, I can pretty much tie it into it. It's all about time management and drive and how someone can basically dial into that to make sure they can catapult themselves and become successful. Yeah, so let's get into it. <laughs> and I know awesome. I'll, get I'll get challenged by a lot of people. Okay. Again, goes back to what kind of life you want to live. Um, the shit you see on, God, I'm sorry to curse. I'm just saying, I just, no, okay. when I see it, I just look at it. So the stuff you see on Instagram, you say, all right, I want to live that life, but you don't know how much the life costs. It has a value. It has, a, it has an actual number in order to live that life. Now, after you figure out the number it, it costs to live that life, there's only so many things you can do in this world that get you that much money. Again, people love long shots. Yo, but I know a dude who's making, you know, a hundred grand a year just flipping sneakers. How many of them? Because I can tell you the majority of people you come across who are flipping sneakers, they're not riding around in Ferraris. Yeah. <laughs> because that's not what's happening. <laughs> like they're grinding it out to make that money. They're not like getting in a shipment of, uh, of 500 shoes, flipping that 500 set of shoes immediately and then going somewhere else with it. But you want to know who does get that kind of money really quickly? The guy who buys the excess stock of Nike clothing and then resells it in Mexico or something like that. Mm -hmm. He's doing it by weight. And he can do it all day long by sending it to Central America, South America, by simply buying overstock from, you know, uh, Foot Locker and other places like that, by weight selling it in a third world country and being paid for it. It's not sexy, but the margin's better. That's yeah. what I mean. And if it's not, and let's even say the margin's not better, it's more consistent. You can do that all the time. You can only do it with the shoes when one thing is popular. So that's why I say like your passion doesn't always work. And if we have women who follow this, go with the women too. You can do something in whether it be clothing or in cosmetics, but let's be real. It, the margins are not good, but you could also just become an esthetician attached to a dermatologist or figure out where the real money is as it comes to anything skincare. And it is not in young people. It's actually in older people with insurance and excess money 
to do vanity procedures. They do them more, they do them more expensive. And this is why Boca Raton and um, Mar-a-Lago and those areas are filled with very specialized people for that kind of field. And they make a lot of money. It ain't young people paying for it. Mm -hmm. So it's how you think about these things. And I don't think a lot of young people think about that. They think their passion first. And because this myth of the money will come, they do it. And in the majority of cases, of course, there are outliers, but the majority of cases, the money is not going to come. You're going to spin your wheels and you're going to say, I'm happy. This is great. And then you're going to reach 32, 33 or three years old, and you're going to live in an apartment still, or you're not going to have the things that you want. And you're going to, you're probably going to get frustrated or angry and feel like you were cheated. Yeah. But all you needed to do was pay attention to what were your margins in what you were doing. And some of these businesses, the margins suck. They just do. And it's yeah. not worth doing. In my opinion, that's, that's, you know, so that answers that um, in terms of why I would say you don't, follow your passion you, you follow the money and then as you start making the money you can put more time into your passion i but don't hey don't look don't answer me because i mean don't answer me don't look for me as the person as the say all be all in that there's some people who are therapists that say yo go make yourself happy but again like people say money isn't everything it's a damn good down payment Mm -hmm. I, I don't like not having money and the ability to do what I want to do. To give you an insight into my life, I'm not told on any day what to do. There is no, no day I'm told what to do. I make every and any decision of what I want to do. Even when it comes to other peers, whether it be a landlord or someone else that I deal with, they do not tell me what to do. Not because I'm a big boss. It's because what our exchange is, is money. And if when I have it, I tell them what to do, or we politely discuss it with each other because we both need each other. I need the space. You need the money. We're going to be nice with each other. <laughs> Once one of us isn't doing what we want to do, we then are a bit more disgruntled with each other. The, the balance is off. You see what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Like, <laughs> let's not fool ourselves. And that's what a lot of people are doing. They're fooling themselves. Uh, with, with, with that ideology. So the next part I would say, which is time management and drive. One of the primary things that you have to have is drive. You have to be a person, in my opinion, that is, that is relentlessly driven, especially people who are into sports and things like that. And a lot of young men are, and you, you, if you're, you like competitiveness, uh, one of the biggest hiring pools that a lot of funds, investment banks and brokers hire from are people who've played division one sports, even division two, they want competitive people. You want people who don't quit. Mm -hmm. Your drive has to be there. It, it, ah. Man, if you don't have it, you're not self-motivating. This is not a business for you. Like you can try, it'll work for a little bit, but you won't be able to complete it because you just won't have the drive. So that's one aspect. The next aspect is time management and being willing to do the stuff when you don't want to do it. Like you're saying, you're, you're um, powerlifting. Yeah. You have to want to do it. Like who wants to, you know, strain their muscles like that unless you are very intent and competitive and you're, you're probably more than anything, you're probably self-competitive, mm -hmm. self-motivated because you, you're choosing 
to put that stress on yourself. You don't have to. Yeah, no, totally. Like, obviously, when it comes to, you know, heavy lifting and putting that time in the gym and that much time, you know, we're not talking recreational lifter here. I'm not, I'm not trying to say, you know, the whole like hardcore culture of lifting and anything, but when it comes to competitive lifting, whether it's Olympic lifting, powerlifting, strongman, strength sports as a whole, even American football, for those guys that like the field sports or competitive basketball, whatever it may be, when it comes to competitiveness, again, comparing the competitive nature versus the recreational nature, there's pain involved, physical and <laughs> mental. Like physical so, pain. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're, you're going to get, you know, a knock on your shoulder or your elbow, or you're going to wake up the next day just feeling beat up. And again, I choose to do that. Obviously, if I could wake up every day feeling amazing, that would be great. But guess what? The pain that comes with it, it's it's a small price to pay for all the joy that the hobby brings me. So, Wow, I love that. I love that. So yeah, I mean, so you, you, you get it. Um, and your time management just goes into how focused you are. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just an extremely focused person. I like to be focused. I like to achieve it. Um, but I, it's not because I'm extremely focused for some bleeding heart initiative. I'm extremely focused. And everyone uses this concept like generational wealth, but, but not like that. I, I actually see generational wealth in a particular way. I see the assimilate, assimilation into the American structure of uh, of family legacy and things in a particular way. It's a it's a concept that I called that I call uh, power, money, and influence. And you know, like power is politics, money is money and assets and things of that nature, and um, influence is charity. But not charity in the sense of just oh, we just want to give charity. People give charity in a particular type of way in which it all forms together with those other two, where your charity ends, has you ending up with a name on a building or, or parts of a university named after you, which gives you value to power. Politicians need people who have that kind of influence. That's how they get elected and get their agenda pushed on a local level with mm-hmm. those people who have that kind of influence. And every politician needs access to money. This is how you can never be a politician, but you can be someone like uh, Jared Kushner's father and have all that influence to the point where they got to lock them up for over for overly campaign contributing. So the Kushners are now part of American politics, yet not one person in their family till Jared was in politics. They were just campaign donors. They had influence. So that's me. That's, that's how I'm thinking of these things and why I have the drive and time management that I have because my goal is to get that formulated for my children. And then my children are now pushing forward from that legacy. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Not hopefully we get, we get into sports or hopefully the chips fall the right way or oh yeah, I got these few buildings and we get to manage them. No, we have something that allows us to completely assimilate into what the American power structure is. Mm -hmm. 100%. And it's all about thinking ahead, like I said uh, earlier in this podcast. And I really like how you mentioned that, you know, 
if you want to do it, then you're going to do it, you know, despite putting the strain on yourself physically, mentally, whatever it may be. And just relating to myself, you know, with the powerlifting and with the training, because it's two things that I really, really love. I found that no matter what I was going through in my life, no matter how sad I was or angry I was at something, no matter how stressed out I was, no matter how, like, there have been days where I just didn't want to do anything because of, you know, whatever BS life threw at you, right? No matter what the circumstance was, I always showed up my, at my desk and opened up my charts and always drove to the gym and got my workout done. So I really like how you mentioned that because it's something that I live by all the time. You know, if you want to do it, you're going to do it regardless. Yeah. <laughs> you just simply show, man, it's so simple. And I, I, I again, I hate to be cheesy. But I remember when I was in college and I used to like not want to do certain work because I had like my business and stuff. Um, I used to think about Nike's just do it. Like it, it just sounded, but it literally, it's that simple. It's just yeah. like, all right, man, I, I, I just got to do it. <laughs> I just need to do it. Yeah, That's definitely. it. <laughs> exactly. And just kind of going back to the uh, passion doesn't equal money thing. And, you know, you might find something else similar. Would you say the kind of moral of the story is if you do have a passion, maybe the direct thing you were thinking of may not lead to money, but there may be something similar in that field that could. Lead yeah. To I, so I have a buddy um, who he's like a model manager, uh, but obviously, you know, anyone can pick up a camera and be a photographer, but he's a manager and it sounds cool, but let's, again, let's be real. Photographers aren't making money. There's only a few. And even some of those guys, uh, they take up all the good high paying jobs, right? Like David LaChapelle, Bruce Weber, people like that. Uh, for those who don't know Bruce, any, most things that you saw in Abercrombie and Fitch was shot by Bruce Weber. Most things you see in, saw in Vogue for a long time were shot by David LaChapelle. So point of what I'm trying to say here is, um, so he started seeing, all right, there's no money in it. And there wasn't enough money for his group of guys to like hustle and make some money. But then they started understanding influencer branding and social media and figuring out, oh, some of these bigger brands like Dove and whatever, they'll pay to have some girl advertise it or fashion over it, advertise on their page. All right, we could, we could, you know, make somewhat of a living managing the girls or getting the girls to those companies. So in essence, did he still kind of, figure out something he did you know what i'm saying but mm -hmm. he, he got the rude awakening that oh crap there's no margin in this booking girls to shoot for, to do photography shoots and things like that but there is money where uh the people hold the golden keys to the industry or or you know the people with the, with the gold who are making the rules i i can get these girls to these people that to these companies that want to do advertising and I can't knock him for that. I don't even knock that. Like, is, was it his passion in a roundabout way? But what really ended up happening is that he had to, real, he had to do real business because mm -hmm. the guys with real money, that's where they are. And then now you have to do real business. It's not some, oh man, I get to look at this hot chick oiled up. He doesn't get to look at any chick. He just has to broker her deal. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, it's definitely a good uh, thing to keep in mind, especially if you're just trying to figure stuff out and if you're young. Yeah, it, it is. It is. But like I said, a lot of it, because the next part I'll say about that is that does he still have a roommate? Yes. So a lot of it has to do with 
Is it paying him to the extent that he could like go do what he wants to do? No. You have to realize like, hey, what do I really want? That's all. What- you want to live that stuff that you see on Instagram and that house is $3 million or whatever. Understand what it's going to take to make $3 million in the kind of environment and understanding the headspace you would have to be in. It's one thing to see that thing that says, oh, you only got to make $279 a day or sell this much product a month and this, that, and nah. There, it walks and talks and breathes. It's, there's a real life aspect to this thing. And it has variables like crazy. Yeah, it's not just on paper where it's like <laughs> numbers, you know? <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Yeah, and, and all those variables are going to hit you because that's all it, it, like, it, it took me until I was like 33 to really understand what a CEO was. I'm not saying like, yeah, I could read it in a definition, but really what my job became as my businesses became bigger and more successful was, Every day I just solved a bunch of problems. That's it. That was my job. I let out the goal and the overarching objective of what we were trying to do as a business, but all I did was solve a bunch of problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it goes back, you know, I hear a lot of people say it's like, if you want to make money, just solve someone's problem or, or help them make more money. That's kind of like the go-to these days, especially with online business. Yeah, and, 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 and that's why... Uh, the internet and sorry, not the internet, but tech companies are so successful and so valuable because really what they're just doing is um, a business with a lot of margin of profit in it, helping you solve problems. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> awesome, man. So we only have a few questions left. You know, they're more four fun questions, but they do still relate to your line of work. And then we just have some quick fire questions and it'll take a few minutes. Awesome. So the first question here, I just have, what are your thoughts on cryptocurrency as a whole? You know, do you believe in the hype? Do you think it's the future? Like some people say it is, or do you think it's just like, uh, it's just here for now. And then like, we'll forget about it. I have an elaborate opinion on cryptocurrency. I know some people, hopefully it doesn't get you flamed (laughs) for having (laughs) someone on here who has his opinion. So I'm short. I'm short Bitcoin uh, and I cover it in an episode on my podcast called the $100 million short. And even more so, I reaffirmed the short because I had started my short position at 35,000. I was profitable for a while. Then obviously it ran all the way up to where it is right now, up to like 50 some odd thousand. I reset the short at 55,000. And one of the main reasons I did is because I noticed something, especially when Janet Yellen spoke and things weren't as favorable. Uh, crypto tumbled, uh, shoot, what, uh, more than, uh, more than like 7,000? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, or more than that. I can't, don't quote me at this very moment. But I think crypto um, is such an interesting thing because as much as people are like decentralized and we don't need the dollar, the whole reason the, the value of your cryptocurrency is up so high has to do with Fed monetary policy and the dollar itself. So that's a contradiction because it has its value due to what they're doing to the dollar. So you still need central governments uh, because as they taper or change things, again, like when the 10-year treasury continues to go up, you will see the value of crypto go down because uh, the market's inflated value will start to go down and people will have to start selling out of their crypto positions, selling out of their stock market positions to lock in their gains. You'll 
see it, just keep paying attention because they're going to let the 10 year run all the way up to two, 2.2%. So that's one thing. Second thing is um, at some point, sovereign nations are going to make their own digital crypto. Uh, some people said, well, that'll just make, uh, you know, Bitcoin or whatever more valuable. I think it'll end up making it less valuable because people will then be able to use the digital currency far easier than having a Bitcoin. And you need the average retail person to, to take interest and buy what it is you're doing or what product it is you made. People don't quite get that. The way these products work, specifically I say products, products are successful not because of institutions, they're successful because of retail investors. Then institutions pump it all the way up because they have even more money. But when we need something to run up in value, it's usually led by retail. And, and, and if you ever wanna get rich in the products business for securities, you create something that gets approved by the SEC and you sell it to retail clients. This is why mortgage-backed securities were so valuable. Um, you could get something that was AAA rated, you could sell it to a pension, you could sell it to an individual, you could sell as much as you wanted because you could make them long as they were building more houses. So they built more houses and they kept selling them and made billions and billions and billions of dollars. Simple. So that's, that's how I think of crypto. Will it be viable, foreseeable future? Yes, I do think it'll be viable, but I don't think it will be Bitcoin. I think, uh, and I know you didn't ask Bitcoin specifically, but I don't think it will be Bitcoin. I think sovereign nations will have their own coins. Yeah. And um, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say like, you know, a lot of people, they're like, yeah, crypto is the future because we're moving towards a digital currency. But I don't think, you know, the governments and the feds, they want to go with a decentralized currency. You know, they still want to have control over that stuff. So, yeah, they, they, you know, and the other part that people forget, it is the Fed's actual job to manipulate your economy. Yeah, I think they like. But again, I know a lot of people don't actually study economics. That's their job. <laughs> their job is to keep markets healthy their job is not to let it deteriorate to hell <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so i do feel like you know if there is a digital currency in the future it's it's still going to be centralized for the reason that you just said so yeah that's just, so that's just my so opinion. that's why i'm that's so that's why i'm short crypto in these things because regulation will level that playing field um fed policy will will deflate its value over time and the other part and don't get me wrong i don't think like i think there's a lot of smart people in this space and they do get it but they also don't understand the unintended consequences of monetary policy and that's uh, tim geithner uh who was the, the two fed chairs ago uh maybe yeah don't quote me but maybe two two or three anyway in the obama administration he was fed chair mm -hmm. The hardest part about monetary policy, as he said, is that it is the unintended consequences based off the policies that you make. That's the problem. And this thing with crypto and values, it's not intended for it to happen. It's happening because they're trying to take care of Main Street, even though they were like, oh, we were taking care of Wall Street on the last go round they did this go round, they are directly taking care of main street people and um, it will have consequences and not even inflationary uh, immediately 
we're only now starting to see some inflationary pressures with the 10-year treasury rising up, but you will more so see that the consequences that it will have are what people will end up having to succumb to when you have rising rates. Because again, if the 10-year is rising, banks will have to adjust what they're lending at while you have high asset prices. When you start getting this problem, you will run into what is called a credit default swap issue, where people have on more credit than they can handle for what it's gonna cost them. Other people can't finance because it's now become too expensive with assets being expensive, then you're trying to finance at a higher price, but the assets prices artificial. So you will get a slowdown in direct lending and direct lending is what creates new money in an economy. So overall, you'll start to see things to fall, things falling apart. Gotcha. Yeah, that's really cool stuff. So yeah, that's pretty much that, you know, I just want to hear your opinion and it was very well said. So moving on to the next question, again, a for fun question. And I know there's one person in this link, at least one person, you know, they were just hoping I would ask this and <laughs> I feel like I would be doing people like wrong if I didn't ask this, you know, just for fun. Uh, as a hedge fund manager, from your perspective, what was your initial reaction and your initial thoughts on the whole, you know, situation a month or two ago with like retail traders going against hedge funds and like longing GameStop and AMC and that whole ordeal with like Wall Street bets and stuff? I thought um, it was probably the most ignorant thing the average retail trader could do. Um, and I know I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get love for it. Actually on my <laughs> podcast, my podcast has been a five out of five star podcast for three years. And as soon as I made my episode on GameStop and AMC, I got two, like one star, two star. Oh wow. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew it was gonna happen. But this is the thing, and I, I feel sorry for people not understanding this. So I'll, I'll start it at, at this first part. Mm -hmm. The first part is where people are like, oh, Ken Griffin is with is in cahoots with Robin Hood. And then Steve Cohen and Ken Griffin gave money to Melvin Capital. You see this manipulation, and it's like, nah, he is their mentee. That's all. Like, it was like if you if you had a friend and you guys were really good friends friends for years and he worked for you then he ran into some trouble but you happen to be a billionaire you might give him a million dollars because you could afford it I, I mean that's it he he worked for both guys <laughs> that, that it's just dumb luck that's it that's, yeah. that's all that was um so that's one part the second part it was like goodness gracious you guys exposed your position to such a crazy degree you see how roaring kitty uh or i guess his name's keith gill had to find that these guys were over short yeah he had to find it the average person didn't know it in this trade the average person knew long game stop diamond hands to the moon well what happens when okay you let's say you shake out melvin capital you shake out a few people one they have more access to more capital you let you burn a, a hedge fund for a billion dollars and the hedge funds worth 18 billion dollars one of the re reasons we have prime brokers is that we go get access to more capital and we get it even if we pay more for it. Let's say Steve and Ken give um, uh, uh, Plotkin at, at uh, Melvin Capital 
let's say they give them an infusion of $5 billion and they charge them 5% for it. It's above market rates, but Plotkin knows he could get that money back to them. That's why they would give it to him. He just got $5 billion, man. He's going to come back into that market. Then if you look and you pay attention from BlackRock to a few other uh, funds, they turned on the algorithmic trading on that that particular thing. They banked over $16 billion in a week, whether they went long with you or short with you, only for the stock to only end up at the end to get shorted all over again, right down to the 60s and 40s. I know it wasn't a bunch of retail shorting it that damn low. And what's even worse is the lies that these people were telling to each other that you could see from the beginning. We're not selling a thousand or to the moon or we're not selling anything. Meanwhile, your compatriots that you're playing this game with are selling. (laughs) They're lying to you. You're you're listening to someone on a message board tell you that he's not going to sell, but he just made the most money he's ever made in his life. He's selling. Now, (laughs) Gil couldn't sell because he's a registered person. It doesn't matter that he never sold securities. I've been a registered person. Doesn't matter if he didn't sell securities in that capacity. We are not allowed to have any outside accounts. This is why the attorney general in Massachusetts immediately started questioning Mass Mutual. Why does he have an outside account? Why is he talking about his positions on the internet? And he is a registered person. That's a no-no. That is why he gets indicted. That's why he's being sued. And potentially why he hasn't sold any of his position. I know some people say he sold some of the position, but a person who was posting his trades for months, all of a sudden stops posting his trades. Yeah, because there's a securities infraction. And after you stop posting your trades, you better not sell anything because now you've definitely misled people. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't know that. So that's what I think about it. I think people made great money. And a lot of people just gave their money right back. And I know they did because they were started DMing me on Instagram and saying, what do I think? And I'm like, I don't even know how you got here. <laughs> I wasn't even here when you made this decision. I don't know what's going on. Oh, man, that's hilarious. It's one of the, it's like a classic pump and dub. That's exactly what I saw it as, honestly. Yes, and, and, and it really was. And that's, and that's how they were labeling it. And um. And Gill was feeling like, and when I keep saying Gill, everyone, I'm talking about, I, I just don't know if it's Keith Gill or Ken Gill, but Gill, who's deep effing value, um, that's what they're kind of holding him to. And even if he says, I never had that capacity, the issue is, as a regulated person, you know what a pump and dump is, you know how they work, you know what you're doing when you incite people to have this interest. And um, that, you know, that's definitely the case. I'm sorry. It, it, it just is the case. You'll see how it plays out. Don't be surprised if they, they make him disgorge the money that he made, fine on the money that he made. But he hasn't sold that, that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that gives it away. <laughs> yeah. Like, it just does. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I just wanted to ask that because, you know, it's just really cool seeing it from your perspective, you know, being an insider on that side and just seeing how it went. And like, again, they just made guys a lot of money. That, that, that's it. They, and then when I say a lot, they made a, that, that they were trading over 
100 million shares. I'm sure I'm even quoting it low, but I know it was trading over 100 million shares at one point. I mean, that, that short was juicy, man. I remember when they went back to look at what the short outstanding short position was and the short position had gotten higher, though the shares were at $400 a share. That's ridiculous. So I was like, yeah, they just, they, they, man, they, they got, oof, they got paid so well. And believe me, uh, when you're at a hedge fund, you're not getting blocked from, oh, you, you can't trade this name today. They may restrict us in how much we can trade of that name, but they're going to go locate that for us. They're definitely going to go locate it if we want it. I'm not saying they'll find it or they'll find enough, but they're going to go. Yeah. Honestly, like with that whole thing, it was just, I've never seen anything like that before. People made money, you know, like, just like you said, with your, your guys' side, you guys made money shorting. And then some of the retail guys, if they got out in time before, like, you know, the short happened or before like the Robin hood restrictions happened, they made money too. So again, it was just a fun piece of uh, history in the market. If you want to call it that. And, and the other part is that because a lot of people are too young, this ain't the first time this has happened. Uh, look up tiger global management. This situation happened with them and American airlines. Um, there was another one, which was one of the biggest funds that did a lot of over leverage and borrowing, uh, which was called, um, oof, I can't even remember the name right now, uh, but it was a, it was a big hedge fund in the, er, in the early 80s that was able to, to take a portfolio of about 100 million and lever it up to over, over 1.5 billion. And then long-term capital to all of your listeners and even to you go look up long-term capital these, these things have happened this isn't new gotcha yeah i'll definitely look into that but awesome man that pretty much wraps up the main questions of the podcast uh just remaining the last few minutes i have the one question that i ask everybody at the end and then i have all the quick fire questions so the one question sure. i ask everyone at the end it's what are your goals for the future. And when I mean future, I'm talking long-term one to 10 years, you know, I know for you, you've already done a lot and you know, you're at a place where you may not want to expand as much, but you know, go right on, go on ahead. If you uh, have anything to build on. No, I actually have a, a very uh, specific goal and um, it's a big goal. So I have a business, uh, which is a debt settlement business, not to be confused with credit repair or debt collection, it's debt settlement. And um, I intend to have it acquired by a SPAC later this year uh, so I could get it publicly traded. Uh, and one of the main reasons I wanna do it is because uh, this is this generations.com era, man. If you're paying attention, you could have a company that is scalable with proof of concept that if you can really execute it, you could be worth half a billion dollars uh, in the span of about a year, year and a half. Damn. And I have that kind of business right now on my hands. And once I get it on the stock exchange and I get acquired by the um, Special Acquisitions Corp, and I know I will, I've already got this all teed up. I just can't go into very dis very specific details till we start releasing the press releases. I, I don't have, I don't have to run a fund anymore. If I don't want to, I, I'll easily a hundred million at the low end, I'll be worth that. 
and um, it just has to perform a little bit and I'll easily be worth close to a billion. So that's, it's not even a, we're not even talking a 10 year goal. We're talking more of like a year to the next year and a half goal and it's already in motion. So I'm excited, but that's my next step. My, my step has always been, how do I access public markets? So a lot of young people, if you're listening to this, really what you want to do is be able to put together a company that can access public markets. That's so, so cheap and it's going to stay cheap for quite a bit of time. You, you get some help with management. You can just become a multi hundred millionaire through this. There's a, there's how many people who are under the age of 40 that aren't playing any sports that are new billionaires in my podcast for China being a growth play, China made over 300 new billionaires. Wow. In 2020, we made seven public markets. Their stock market is expanding. That's how they made it. They didn't, not because they invented the wheel. There's just so much money in the public debt markets, so much money in the equity markets. You put that together, 100 million at the minimum. Gotcha. Well, that's some great stuff, you know, just public. I didn't know like (laughs) that sort of stuff, you know, me being a young guy and just not into that stuff. So that's really good to know. But I say that stuff because, again, it goes back to like, how do people, whether you be a minority or anything else, when they say like, yo, I want to make money, I want to live fat. I want to like, you got to understand how it looks like in your economy, in your country. You know, like this ain't the days of I'm going to go invent the next Facebook. It, it ain't we're just not in that time anymore yeah we've moved pa- past that time you've got to do something that is scalable enough to where the debt markets or the equity markets want a piece and if you can do that i'm i'm not saying overnight billionaire but you know how some of those companies will then have like even like how pe- everyone was like ranting and raving oh my gosh clubhouse has like a billion dollar valuation or whatever you know they run that company right if they haven't even gotten the infusion yet, I'm sure SoftBank is coming very soon to hand those guys a fat old check. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, on that note and, you know, just on that topic, if you have anything to add onto that for anyone listening that, you know, wants to make some money, wants to get their foot through the door, wants to pretty much get started with life, you know, for those guys in the early mid twenties, uh, do you have anything to add on to that? Um, I know I, I, I was very transparent. I told pretty much what my story was like. Mm-hmm. I, I could just reiterate it more. So uh, hopefully someone has made it this far in this, but I'm a person who likes longer podcasts. Um, you, you have to be focused and you need to know exactly where you want to be. Plan your life out to the T. Uh, sometimes when, especially when you're young and you're trying to be cool, some people feel like you're doing too much or like, nah, you need to be anal. You need to really know what you want it to look like. You, you need to know how you would afford what you wanted. Um, you know, the, it, it all looks like something. You have to know it. You have to see it. And best of all, after you figure it out, try to get around it. It, it sucks because it's a lot of time your friends aren't, that's not where they want to go, but you need to get around it. And if mm-hmm. you can get around it, you'll see it'll happen a lot faster. 100% man. 
So thanks a lot for that. Like that was a lot of value. And, you know, I, I even got a lot of value just sitting here uh, asking you these questions. And I'm sure the listeners definitely got a lot of value out of that. So again, thank you so much. Uh, we do have some quick fire questions. Yeah, let's so. do them. I'm awesome. Excited. So it's five questions. You can give a quick answer. You can elaborate whatever you want. You know, they're just for fun. So first question, what is your favorite thing to do in your free time? Uh, I'm big into jewelry. I buy a lot of jewelry. I, I just like, I don't know why. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess a little follow-up question on that, you know, I didn't even have that uh, written down. What's your favorite piece of jewelry? You know, if you have like a favorite piece of like, um, yeah, like a watch uh, or something. No, so it's not a watch. I have this uh, 14 karat Asher cut ring. I wear it pretty much every day. Uh, Royal Asher cut is a really cool stepped cut, kind of emerald cut. Um, that's my favorite piece of jewelry. And, uh, I, I'm a big shopper at Jacob and company and yeah, that, that, that's it. And then if it were a watch, I have this particular one of one watch, um, which is all, um, natural canary yellow diamonds. Um, it's just an extremely rare and hard watch to, to do and make it take, took about like a year and a half to make the watch. Uh, I love the watch. Uh, it's 1.2 million. And like, that's how big into jewelry I am. I'll, I'll spend that much on it, but I just like it. It's just a personal design, almost like art kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Uh, second question, favorite restaurant slash go-to food. Uh, this is going to sound like so pompous, but I really like a five Wagyu because I like steak, but a five Wagyu is so different. And it tastes amazing with like uh, a Hennessy sidecar or with like cognac. So Mastro's is one of the, like there's other places that have A5, but real A5, one of the few places you can get A5 every day on any given day when you go there. So that's my favorite restaurant. That's my favorite thing to order. I almost have it once a week, almost. Awesome. Third question, favorite music to listen to? So I am a very interesting person. There's only two types of music I like to listen to. Old soul music, like stuff that is sample, that hip hop samples. Mm -hmm. And I usually find it by, find, by going through hip hop songs or albums uh, where everyone said, well, not everyone, but like this particular few websites talk about what was sampled from that album and like where the original sample comes from. So I like that. And I like music that like really motivates me to go and get some money and make some money. Like some early young Jeezy, some earlier Rick Ross, earlier Jay-Z. I don't listen to actually any immediate contemporary rap music. Um, I don't, it's not that I dislike, I just like things that motivate me to go get money. My life revolves around money. Yeah. So I like to be in that mood. Nice. <laughs> that big speaker that you heard go off while we were doing this podcast it's this big you know like what do you call those sonos it, yeah it's like it, you know it's always playing in my office and it always tries to tell me hey you need to connect me to uh, i don't know google play or whatever it's supposed to connect to mm -hmm. that's awesome so question number four so i know you're a big car guy you know i've seen on your instagram you've mentioned it a few times on this podcast what is your favorite car it doesn't even have to be one that you own or i guess like Favorite car you own and favorite car that you would like to own. How about that? No, I, I own the car that I'd like to own. And the only car that I want to get next is a Maybach Pullman. 
So I have a Maybach now, I have a 62S uh, with a partition. So in essence, it's like having a sedan Maybach with the divider and, the, and my driver and I are separate. Uh, I kind of grew out of the feel of driving. I've driven sports cars. I've had a lot of cars from, from Ferraris to, um, I've never had a Lamborghini. I really need to buy a Lamborghini. And um, I've, I've had these other cars and I just kind of got to a place where I really enjoyed being driven and I'm now all in on it. Um, I like being catered to, it just makes my life easier. Uh, so I have my 62S and the only one that I'm missing is a Maybach Pullman. I really want a Pullman because you can ride more people in a Pullman. So like in my 62S, I can only get one other person in there in the back seat with me. And the other person would have to ride in the front. The front is not made for, um, really for individuals, it's just really just made for a driver. Mm-hmm. Um, because all the space has gone to the back so I can stretch my legs out and almost like sleep in a bed if I wanted to. Yeah. So, so that, yeah, I, I, I got my car. Um, I, when I was younger, yeah, I was really into like having like, I mean, I have a fleet of exotics, but I really like somebody opening my door for me and, you know, going to open the umbrella and taking care of stuff. I, I enjoy it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> And the fifth and final question, what is your most memorable trade? And it doesn't have to be the fact that you made a lot of money out of it. Like for me, like my most memorable trade is just like, it was a big move. It was on like, it was literally paper money. And that was the moment I realized like, damn, I can actually do this thing. So what was your most memorable? Uh, New page paper. (laughs) The first time I lost a million (laughs) dollars. It's my most memorable trade because it, um, it really matured me. Like one, sometimes you get your tie cut for, actually we all got our ties cut for our first trade when we worked in brokerage. So that's one thing. Yeah, that's all right. But God's honest truth, losing the money was when I first finally felt like I arrived because I had to deal with a complicated problem where everything else was like, all right, I made some money, it was smooth. And then everyone's looking at you like, all right, what's next? What's the next thing you're about to do for me? But in this time, no one was looking at you. What's the next thing you're about to do for me? Everyone was quiet. So you needed to formulate your own plan because they had no intent to formulate a plan for you. The firm was invested in these new page paper bonds. I went along with it because you work at the firm. Then Then the bonds go belly up. You've got to talk to clients and explain what's happened. And you're trying to navigate this whole thing uh not that it was fun it lingered for over a year but you couldn't experience that unless you failed there was no other way someone couldn't couldn't explain that situation to you even me explaining it to you 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 can't feel it yeah it's one of those things where it's like you have to experience it to actually get it right yeah Mm -hmm. gotcha yeah, definitely not the answer I was expecting, but I think it's the answer we all needed to hear. So, <laughs> I mean, because I could give you one where it's like, you know, I made all this money, but what you'll come to see is that I'm desensitized to money. I no longer have emotions with money. Like mm-hmm. I can tell you, like right now, I had a deal that someone was supposed to pay me some money. They felt like they didn't want to pay me the money uh, based off of like, oh, but technically we're friends. I shouldn't have to pay you that. Now, most people, especially young people, for the amount of money I'm talking about, uh, which is like a little over $20,000, they'd be like, yo, for $20,000, I'm going blah, 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 blah. 
I'm like, all right, bro, you don't want to pay it. Don't pay it. I mean, we're not going to do business anymore, but whatever, you know what I mean? And I, I have that whatever feeling because I've lost emotions with money. I can make money, not every time I feel like it, but I mean, I'm at a point in my life where I could routinely make a hundred thousand dollars a day. It's not extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't look at it that way. So telling you like when I made like $45 million is not, it's not the right story. It doesn't give you a real perspective when you have that loss and trying to figure out how it's going to work. That gives you far more perspective in my opinion. Gotcha. Awesome, man. That that's it for the quick fire questions at, and at the same time, that's it for the whole podcast. So again, thank you so much for coming on and shedding all that value. I know we were here for, you know, close to two hours, but it was well worth it. Hey, bro, I, I hope I hope they listen to it. I, I know in this, there's there's quite a few things that are worthwhile to some younger people. Um, please have me on anytime. Um, and I'm going to listen to some of your podcasts because you could probably work on my podcast, too, because I'm I can see from the demographics. There's a lot more young people listening to me and I need to start giving them a little bit of something because I'm so jaded. I'm only talking about stuff that matters. You know what I'm saying? I feel like I'm not giving them everything I could. So you could help me. Definitely, man. Appreciate that a lot. And, you know, while we're on that note, do you want to plug in your own podcast as well? You know, I've been listening to the last couple of days and it's great. You know, again, I have interest in that type of stuff, but for those that have the same interests as you and I, go ahead, plug it in. And as well, uh, where can people find you? Sure. Um, So the podcast is called uh, Trade Talk from a Hedge Fund Insider. Uh, when you when you put it into your Apple or Spotify, you'll see a gold G pop up. Uh, just click on it. Uh, the focus is macroeconomics and how you analyze macroeconomics to make an informed microeconomic decision. Um, it's very detailed. Sometimes it can get a little over people's head, but it's totally worth learning it um as you can see it's i would have i have a pretty good hit rate i'm about 85 percent over the past two years i've been pretty spot on and i'm consistently following markets so if you're into that broad thinking then narrowing down the thinking and actually having a true thesis to why you trade throughout a year that's the podcast for you uh if you want to nerd out a little bit it's it's not so nerdy that you that you get bored episodes are only about like 15 minutes long very quick and to the point but very very informative um in terms of where to find me i don't do anything like teaching any courses or anything like that i just run my fund i do the podcast the podcast was originally intended just for clients wasn't even intended for people it's just that it caught on with people um so i i can't really say like there's some place to find me because i'm not hawking anything all my stuff is free (laughs) so tune into it and enjoy it that's awesome again thank you so much man and for everyone listening thank you so much for listening especially if you made it this far i hope you got a lot of value out of it and i'll catch you guys in the next episode take care take care guys peace out peace so i hope you guys enjoyed that episode if you did Go ahead and subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen and I'll catch you guys next Monday.